0: Welcome to the MFS Strategist Corner Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Almeida.
1: The views expressed are those of the speaker and are subject to change at any time. These views are for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a recommendation to purchase any security or as an offer of securities or investment advice. No forecast can be guaranteed. Past performance is no guarantee of future results.
0: This episode, I speak with MFS's equity analyst, Nip Demko, who covers one of MFS's historically largest and most important active exposure, the life science and diagnostic supply chain. Nick talks about the attractive characteristics of the space over time and what has always attracted MFS to it, but also his experience investing in this industry through COVID, its unusually high volatility during, and thoughts ahead. Finally, he'll touch on the democratization happening in genome research and its implications in how scientists and researchers will approach disease, treatment discovery, and ultimately lifespans. Nick, thank you for coming. Welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me. Happy to be here.
0: So, Tell us about your early formative investment years. You know how you got started the industry. What attracted you to it? All that. What what don't we know about Nick Demko?
1: Yeah. Well, I guess I mean, I, I was around investing. You know, from a pretty young age. I guess that you know the first memory I have of of kind of you know stocks were going to my grandfather's house. You know, when I was I don't know maybe eight years old, kind of thing, and and he was an immigrant out of out of postwar Germany, and and you know. Uh, didn't didn't make a ton of money or anything, but what he did make, he saved and, and he put it in the stock market. And I remember him, you know, he was proud of this, and and he would show me his handwritten sort of you know stock ledgers and and say, you know, here's what I own, here's what it did over the past year. And I had no idea, you know, what any of it meant, but it was clear that it was important to him. And and so it was, um, you know, it was just fascinating to me. So th- so you know, I was kind of around stocks from a young age. Um, and, and my dad was kind of a casual investor as well, but you know when I went to I went to Cornell University for for school, you know I decided to become an engineer, be, you know because I didn't know what I was um, mm-hmm. what I was doing. I was always sort of left brain oriented, and, and the engineering that I chose was it was called information engineering, and. Again, I was young. I didn't know what that meant, but I learned a lot about statistics and probability and game theory and, and simulation, and, and that kind of brought me back to, you know, my grandfather's ledgers and, and what he must have been thinking of. And so, so from that point on, I was like, all right, I, I think I want to be an investor. I think this is what I want to do. Um, and so, after you know, undergrad, I, I went to J.P. Morgan. I worked for four years there. Um, you know, started in wealth management, did, did some asset management stuff. Um, you know, wasn't fundamental stock picking in Mm -hmm. the way that, you know, I had in my mind. So, um, got my CFA, um, went to business school at, at Chicago, um, you know, learned from some legendary investors there, Eugene Fama, um, you know, and, and, and throughout, you know, I think it was just kind of building, you know, I think this is what I want to do. Yeah. It's definitely what I want to do. Um, you know, ultimately led me to MFS, did the internship here and, um, I guess i haven't looked back since so when you think from those early years watching your
0: grandfather up to present day let's include the pandemic and all the volatility we'll get into your your coverage any large so if you're talking to a younger nick nick demko right any any lessons one or two if any that you would want to impart on him
1: yeah you know it's a it's a great question and and when you think about it it's like you know, I've learned from all these great people, most of them at, at MFS. And at no point was I like, oh, this is it. You know, now I can get every stock right from from here <laughs> on a out. It's right? the magic formula. Yeah, there's no, there's no magic formula to investing. And, but it's, you know, the little things you kind of pick up. And so I I would say, you know, there's there's been a number of you know, people I've taken a lot from at, at MFS and, and some of the lessons that that really stand out to me. One, you know, portfolio manager that we both know well, a lesson he taught me is, you know, you're you're gonna hear from management teams all these, you know, grand stories of how they're gonna, you know, grow and be phenomenal companies. But but don't just believe it. Wait, you know, wait until you see it. and, mm-hmm. and what he meant by that was look at the financial statements, let them tell the story, you know, more than management. And right. so, you know, maybe you're not going to catch the, um, you know, the the very low point when a business inflects, but you're also going to avoid a lot of those falling knives. Right. And so that was, that, that's stuck with me, um, you know, quite a bit. You know, another important mentor to me, um, who's, who's now retired, taught me capital allocation, right? You know, there's, there's so much about uh, you know, a business that is out of management's control, right? We, we spend a lot of time interviewing management and, and executive teams, but they don't control industry structure and, and pricing and, and what their competitors are doing. But one thing they definitely control is how they're spending the money. And, and you know, figuring that out, figuring out, all right, who has generated a good return for investors, who's returning it to, to shareholders, you know, who's blowing it on bad deals yeah. um, has become a very important part of, of my investment process. Um and 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 maybe a third one um you know this is this was from an analyst at at MFS you know in terms of differentiating yourself from what you know consensus is sure. um you know one of the things that that's a common mistake is you think about margins as always being a a constant percent of revenues, and in some businesses that might be the case, but but one of the industries I cover, you know, telco, cable companies, it's a very high fixed cost business, and so w- when you have revenues that kind of beat expectations, it all falls through through to the bottom line, and and that can be a double edged sword if revenues are good or bad, but figuring out. You know what those incremental or decremental margins are going to be has been a, an important process for kind of you know being differentiated um and and there's probably countless others but it's you know it's all about those those little conversations and then remembering it and yeah. and applying it going forward um and and uh you know i think it's one of the, the best things about mfs is people want to teach you those lessons, yeah. and I've learned a lot of them.
0: No, that makes sense, thank you for that. So you mentioned telco, uh, your other area of coverage, uh, you sit inside the healthcare team, but specifically you cover uh, the life sciences and diagnostics supply chain, which uh, interestingly has been one of MFS's biggest active exposures for a long period of time. So yeah. um, maybe just frame it for us in, in simple terms. You know, What is that space? Uh, what is so attractive ab- about it? What are the characteristics, and, and and what are the drivers, and and I guess we, what's the economic moat that that drives that higher margin?
1: Yeah, it's it's a great question. I mean, I guess so. The first part, you know, what are these businesses? What what, what do they do? You know, and this is a broad swath of yep. of businesses. But I guess if I were to 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 summarize it at the highest level, I think about them as kind of being arms dealers to the life science industry. So, if you're a biotech or a pharmaceutical company and you're trying to get, you know, a, a, an idea from early stage lab to, you know, commercial drug in someone's arm, you know, you're spending a lot of time, resources, energy on buying things like, you know, microscopes and mass spectrometers and reagents to run experiments. And and there's a handful of companies that kind of, you know, dominate that space. And and so they're not directly you know making the drugs mm-hmm. they're kind of supplying the picks and shovels to kind of get yeah. a drug from you know idea to to market and and you know for the second part of your question what sort of makes these good businesses why, why is there an economic moat you know i think first and foremost it's what's the value proposition to the customer and and in this case most of what these companies are selling are relatively low cost right you, okay. you think about the budgets of a pharma company, the R and D budgets, it's only twenty percent of revenues. And you know, uh, uh at the high end, uh, a mass spec might be a million dollars, but that's you know, incredibly tiny in the, the grand scheme of um, you know an R and D budget or you know, the pipette tip that you're using to to run the experiment, right? Like you're not trying to optimize for cost of your pipette tips. You're trying to optimize getting your drug to market as quickly as possible and as safely as possible. And so what that means for for the companies that that sell the you know the equipment, the supplies to do it, is, you know, they have they have pricing power. Um you know and and they have you know, they are giving the customer something that they really need to get their product to market. And so it's a very high value add relative to to the cost of that product. So good margins, good pricing power, you know, durable growth because of that. And then the other thing is, you know, a lot of what they're selling, a lot of these instruments, it's kind of the old razor, razor blade model, Right. right? Where I sell you some instrument. In order to run your experiment, you've got to buy the kits, the reagents to actually run it. So once you got that instrument sitting in your lab, you're not going to go switch to someone else because it's a fixed cost. You've you've proven yourself. It might be
0: 10% cheaper, but it's not worth it to your business to do that.
1: Exactly. And yeah, I mean, another big positive, I think, from an investment standpoint for, for a lot of these companies is... You know they sell a ton of products right so the the product set is highly diversified there's no one one product where if if there is competition or technologically you know something changes it's gonna you know cause earnings to be down 50 percent or something like that and the customer base is also highly diversified. There's thousands of biotech and pharma companies globally. Um, And so from a a risk management standpoint, there aren't a lot of risks to to, negative earnings revisions type type of thing. And then finally, and this this kind of ties to, to one of the earlier questions, is capital allocation, right? Capital allocation for these companies um, involves, for the most part, buying other, you know, instruments and reagents and kind of folding them into their sales process, their R&D process. And because it's a very fragmented industry um, where, you know, there's benefits to scale, where your customers trust you, when you buy, you know, small companies and and you can kind of, you know, consolidate the sales organizations, the R&D organizations, and sell them to a customer base you already have, it's a very powerful, Way to, to kind of allocate your capital. So you look at the returns on investment of okay. all the acquisitions they've done, you know, it far exceeds you know, a lot of the other industries that we look at. So, you know, when when you aggregate up A lot of the answers that i just sort of gave um what makes it you know from a from a fundamental analyst standpoint like what makes it such a high quality industry it's it's an above market grower above market margins and below average sort of risk or volatility and and the tough part can be valuation. But, you know, we can find companies where valuation is is reasonable as well. And so those are kind of, you know, hallmark, you know, high quality businesses that we'd love to own over the long term.
0: Which sounds consistent with why we're attracted in aggregate to pickaxes and shovels and arms deals in other industries too, right? So if you maybe compare what you're talking about to biotech and, and pharma, where perhaps a higher margin, but if you get the drug right, and then it cliffs in five years.
1: Totally, yeah, and and I think you know one of the you know biggest sort of uh, you know relative bets that we've made is own these suppliers, own the picks yeah. and shovels rather than pharma and biotech, and and part of it is, you know, it's really hard to pick what the next biotech is right. is going to yeah. be. We're not scientists. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and 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 when you think about it, they've got. Effectively a depleting asset, right? Once you find that hit, which A is really hard to do, sure. but but once you find it, there's a patent, you know, cliff. There's an expiration to your asset. So there's yeah. a, a finite duration of life where, you know, 10, 15 years later, you've got to replenish that asset. Right. Whereas you're the guy selling the the reagents and, and pipette tips, you've got a durable business that's gonna last, you know, hundreds of years in some cases. Some of the pioneers and in early liquid chromatography, you know, I'm thinking of, of of a company we own where they've been number one market share for almost 70 years wow. with limited innovation, because that goes back to our earlier point. Why are you going to change? It's working, yeah. it gets your drug to market faster. And so, you know, these the, the, the pick and shovel, the supply chain guys tend to just have more durable growth um, and, and higher returns over the long term. So let's go back to the start of the pandemic.
0: Um the roller coaster like returns that these stocks and your coverage went through. Maybe walk us through a little bit what was that like in 2020, 2021 and offer some context around it, what was going on.
1: Yeah, I mean definitely the most dynamic time, I think, in all of our lives <laughs> sure. from a, you know, a personal standpoint and in the stock market was was no different. I mean uh, I mean at a high level it's just it was humbling to kind of cover a lot of these companies that are right in the the thick of it um you know if you're doing covid testing or covid you know vaccine manufacturing um Well we just... were all looking for you as a personal resource during <laughs> covid
0: so you had that added pressure too. It,
1: exactly which was which was not on the job description <laughs> right. you know when I signed up for this um but but it was um you know like I said it was it was humbling exciting you know at times um you know terrifying and 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 sad from a humanity standpoint but but at other times from an investment standpoint just massive amounts of volatility in the space which you know really helped from a stock picking standpoint because you could look at some of these companies and say look the market is giving you know, this company almost no credit for their COVID profits. In this company, they're extrapolating, you know, the COVID vaccine is going to be here for the next, you know, 20 years. And so it actually was was a fun time from from a stock picking standpoint to kind of, you know, quantify what the possible outcomes are for COVID, you know, put a mental probability distribution math on all the possibilities and, and you stay on top of the news um, as much as you can and, you know, stock pick relative value between them. And, and I think, you know, know, as a firm, we added a lot of value just within my space, figuring out which companies, um, you know, had a lot of embedded expectations and which ones, you know, didn't. And and so you can kind of be tactical during those times of of high volatility. Right. So fast forward to today, we've had the China
0: slowdown, war in Europe that impacted your space. And and I think maybe for the outsider, you wouldn't think of that. um, But how did that impact demand for these tools companies?
1: Yeah, I mean, so 2022 has been, you know, a crazy year on a bunch of different levels. Sure. And, and, and you mentioned um you mentioned a few of them. So most of these. You know, companies that we're talking about, the life science tools companies, they're very global organizations, right? There, there's not, um, you know, when you think about China risk, there's, there tends to not be many local Chinese suppliers of of this equipment, which in normal times is is kind of a positive. China's a high growth market. The reason they um, don't have, you know, local competitors is because they're these are high tech instruments that are kind of hard to replicate, right? And and so we're in this situation from from a china standpoint where demand right now is um is impacted by a lot of the shutdown so yeah. you know roughly 15 percent of revenues kind of come from china okay. and that slowed down meaningfully for these companies but when you take a step back and in the market has reacted yep, right so some of the companies down. have yep. yeah the companies have come down in valuation and, and when you take a step back and think about it and you're like long term you know do i want china exposure or not And the reality is, you know, the the reasons I gave at the beginning of, you know, they can't, you know, come up with their own local supply for these things. And it's a high growth market. You know, I think you do want China exposure. And and yes, there are tail risks from a, a political, you know, geopolitical tension standpoint. But. You know, when the market gives you a huge discount to companies that have China exposure and and when you take a step back and and overlay a probability distribution of what may happen, you know, I actually think we're getting, you know, really interesting opportunities in a lot of these names that have sold off, you know, because of China exposure. So be able to look through that short term noise and put a,
0: a general terminal value on it, and it just increases the relative attractiveness.
1: Totally, totally. I mean, and, and a few other things that, you know, we spent a bunch of time thinking that the, you know, war in, in Russia, Ukraine, you know, if we think about it a ton. Um, it, you know, thankfully for these companies, it's not a huge portion of yeah. revenues. So, th- you know, that's not one, um, you know, we worry about. The, the FX moves, do matter for the companies, um, but it's quantifiable. It's not when you take a ten-year time horizon. That's not going to, uh, you know, move the needle meaningfully on an investment thesis. But the one that um, you know is new that we spend a lot of time thinking about now is just what does the future of the biotech industry look like ten years out? Because you know, young companies that are unprofitable are very out of favor right now. It's hard hard to raise money, and so you know, companies that are supplying that industry have have seen you know, an impact to their stock prices and, and valuations. And and that's controversial. And and it's similar to the China reference, though, where you take a step back and you think, look, innovation has accelerated in this industry massively over the last yeah. five years. And, and maybe there's a short-term blip where they can't raise money because yeah. we're in a recession, capital yeah. markets Fed's are closed, whatever rates, it may be. Whatever it might be. Totally, totally. But you know, it's also when you take a 10-year time horizon and, and the stocks are reflecting, you know, a big discount because of that risk, you know, I kind of view it as an opportunity. And so I actually think you know a lot of the companies we've been talking about, you know, look more attractive today than they have, you know, in, in recent history. Yeah.
0: So in spite of what's happening in capital markets and fungibility, innovation is going to happen. It might not be at the public sector level, but the or at the university level, but innovation is gonna happen. Totally. And these products totally. are always in demand. That that makes a ton of sense. Okay. So um you wrote a note recently, um, and it was in reference to a stock in your coverage that I thought was so interesting, and I want to hit on it and, and, and close out with this. Yeah. Talk about genomic democratization. And I, that's a big term, but maybe simplify it for me, and what does this mean, I guess,
1: maybe for people? Totally. Um, you know, when when we use the word democratization um, – Typically, you know what you're referring to is something that was very hard to get access to is now accessible by you know millions of people, and so when you think about you know uh, uh, g- you know genomic um, understanding, right, mm-hmm. which is effectively what this is, sequencing of of the genome. You know we have the ability we have the technology to know the makeup of every single organism every single disease you know in the world it's not hard the technology exists right. what's hard is that it's pretty expensive right so and it takes a ton of time to actually you know go out and se- sequence these these diseases and and so the, the democratization of of you know genomic sequencing means the costs come down, yeah. the amount of data you can generate goes through the roof. And what that means is you can understand diseases better. You can understand how the body reacts to to being exposed to diseases, to being exposed to medicine. And so if you can overlay you know, an element of, uh, you know, AI or machine learning with all this data that is becoming more available. You know, the bottom line is we, we should be accelerating innovation in life sciences. We should be able to solve things that we weren't able to solve, you know, 5, 10 years ago. And, and you know, just the other day, a, a relatively small company announced um, the, the ability to sequence an entire genome for $100. It's an order of magnitude less than, than it is, you know, currently. Right. And, and what it should mean is, you know, lots of innovation and, and healthier people at a lower cost. And it just, it, it's great for society.
0: That's amazing. Nick, thank you so much for this. Really appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you to all our listeners for tuning in. If you've enjoyed this and past conversations in this series, please subscribe to the MFS strategist corner podcast on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. All MFS podcasts, along with other market and investment commentaries from MFS can also be found at our website, MFS.com. Again, thank you.